It's one of those things where if you build this magical experience, developers are inherently, I would say, like skeptical or kind of dubious. And so it's important that you kind of open the curtains a little bit, show people how it works. Hi, you're listening to Scaling DevTools. I'm Jack, and we're joined today by Dennis Pilarinos, who is the founder of Unblocked, and before that was the founder of BuddyBuild, um, which was acquired by Apple. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for having us. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so Unblocked is a tool that lets you ask questions about your code. So it's like broad questions rather than just like, how do I loop through this array? It's like, where do we, how do we manage our secrets? How do we, this sort of broader questions. Yeah, the idea is that you take the source code and complement it with all the kind of code adjacent systems that you use to have conversations about your your source code or your application, like Slack and Notion and Linear. Um, and in conjunction of you know source code plus all that data, you can ask really kind of high level or very specific questions and get an answer uh, to anything that you might want to know about your application code base. That's awesome. Um, and what stage are you guys at at the moment? We launched the, the company, or we announced the company uh, in October of 2023. Uh, so we're a few months in public. Uh, we have a couple thousand developers who use it, uh, and the majority of them use it um, almost every day. So people uh, seem to be liking it. So very early, very early days, but um, kind of off to a good start in terms of um, testing this thesis. Like, is this a real problem? Can we solve it in an elegant way? Amazing. Um, so we're going to come back to, uh, to Unblocked. But the thing I wanted to ask you in this episode is like, what you learned as a founder who sold a developer tool to Apple and is now building another developer tool and kind of like the, the journey you went on and what you've learned um, and are doing differently now. Um, so could you tell us a bit about BuddyBuild and how you got acquired by Apple and what that was like? Sure. Yeah. So we went from inception to acquisition uh, for BuddyBuild in almost three years to the day. Um, and so um, people often ask me, like, well, why did you start BuddyBuild or what's the motivation behind st uh, starting Unblocked? Um, and I think it's a consequence of like, I'm not a super patient person and I'm a very mediocre developer, I would say. Like people would describe me as unpatient. I'm self-aware enough to recognize I'm not very good. Um, and so those two things combine when I start to try to do something, I always ask myself, well, why does it have to be this hard? And so for Buddy Build, a couple of friends and I were trying to build an iOS app uh, and, you know, standard workflow, get push, get a build, test it, kind of provide some feedback. And we're blown away by how hard that was. Uh, and so we kind of gave up on the app and said, well, what if we had a, a hosted CI solution for mobile? Of course, we didn't talk about it in that way at that time. We just really wanted to like focus on that workflow. So we built that um, and we kind of built it in a way where we really optimized for a kind of a developer experience where um, we treated developers as like how most people can build a consumer application where you didn't have to do a lot of like spelunking or configuration. We didn't want you to have to change really any part of your the way that you worked or your project. You could just install an OAuth app, um, have it, you know, introspect over the repository and automatically create a build for you. Um, it was pretty remarkable. People were skeptical that it was possible to, to do it in, in many ways. Um, and yeah, we, uh, we built a product that people loved. Uh, we had, you know, thousands and thousands of developers who used that product, um, from all over the world. Um, and so I think that kind of 
registered on the radar for a handful of you know, folks and, and Apple was one of them. And so um, at one point they asked if um, they'd be interested in you know, acquiring the company and the team working there. Um, and uh, we started to explore that. Um, and so um, that kind of kicked off uh, a pretty long journey um, in terms of like having these conversations and figuring out what, what we wanted to do. But yeah, it was a pretty kind of surreal process. Yeah. And that sounds like it was like, I don't know, like three years of just the way you've <laughs> explained it there. It sounds like it was just like a very kind of smooth, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was a little bit, um, they always have their hiccups along the way. Um, what, like, was it a hard decision to kind of decide to sell to Apple? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it reminds me of this graphic when people are like, wow, from inception to acquisition in kind of three years. And there's this meme like internet graphic where it's kind of a chart, like a graph. I don't know if you've seen it where it's like what people think success looks like. And it's, you know, point A to point B up and to the right and what it actually is, which is like, you oh, know, a bunch of squiggly lines, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just absolute misery followed by, <laughs> you know, incredible moments of happiness. Uh, so the whole spectrum. Um, yeah, selling to Apple was definitely one of the things that we wanted to think very carefully about. I had uh, experience uh, building and running teams at places like Microsoft and Amazon. Um, and so I kind of know what working at a big company is like and the pros and cons of it. Um, and we thought seriously about that as we thought about joining Apple. Um, and so that was probably one of the, you know, certainly things that we spent the most time thinking about as a company, if we wanted to do it. In fact, during the acquisition process, one of the things that we did was get everyone in the company um, to actually get into a room um, and just do a thumbs up, thumbs down. We had been speaking to a handful of the folks who kind of met us, uh, who had flown up to Vancouver. We had chatted with them. Um, and uh, at the end of that kind of day, we all got together and I was like, if anyone, any single person, you know, from the office manager to the CTO decides to put a, a single thumbs down, we won't do the deal. And everyone, you know, after having these conversations, we're suitably impressed. We liked the people that we worked, we were chatting with. We thought there was an overlapping culture. We were excited by the opportunity to, you know, take Buddy Build to, you know, Apple scale. Um, and so uh, everyone put their thumbs up and we kind of proceeded through that process. But it was, uh, it wasn't just a decision, certainly that I made or the founders made. It was a, it was a team-wide decision. Wow. That's really cool. That would have, yeah. it would have been interesting if like John, the intern had like, put his thumbs down. <laughs> yeah. It would have been interesting to understand why, but yeah, for sure. And I actually, I was doing some research on like CI, CD tools. I used to be a mobile dev a, a while back. And I, I remember like, because I think is buddy build still around. Um, no, not, yeah. so, so buddy build lives on as Xcode cloud, which is basically the integrated environment that you have within Xcode now. Um, and so the, you know, the vision of, of buddy build certainly exists there. Uh, but BuddyBuild.com uh, was shut down, uh, which is still sad for me at times for sure. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like how I remember was that people were like saying, Oh, buddy Build's great. And then someone else was like, Oh, it doesn't really like, it's not really existing anymore. Um, and this was like after, um, so it seemed like you have like a, had like a really good, um, like developer love, uh, situation going on. For sure. Was that the reason, like, would you, do you feel like that was why Apple bought you or were they like weighing up other companies? And is there any advice that you would have to other founders? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's so many different angles to it. I think one of the things that, um, you know, we had was a, a ton of experience building secure, 
applications at like a reasonably high scale um, that were cloud-based. Um, and so um, certainly the team that we were joining at Apple didn't have a lot of experience with that. Um, and we knew a lot uh, at that point um, about how people built third-party applications, um, you know, iOS and Android applications. And so Apple was really interested in making sure that they kind of owned a lot of that uh, experience and kind of that uh, intellectual property and kind of knowledge. Um, we, you know, one of the things that we really, really do obsess over kind of what a developer experience looks like. And so um, I think that's one of the things that we tried to like um, also influence at Apple uh, in terms of like treating developers um, not as like fungible assets who, you know, help promote the ecosystem, but as like real people where when you break an API, uh, it matters. Uh, so um, we really to we really you know sweat a lot of the details from every pixel that was on the dashboard to you know the APIs that we provided to kind of kind of the product made you feel. I think one of my favorite pieces of feedback that we received in the very earliest days was something um, that someone had written into us where they said the product basically gives them back a significant portion of their time that they then get to spend with their family, which is like. You know, I, I was just blown away by that. I, I love that. And we would get, we got fan art. People would send us art around how happy they were using the product. So it was, it was super fun. Um, that was definitely one of the things that we're trying to do in Unblocked again. Wow. Fan art. That is, um, that's, yeah. that's a pretty big bar. Um, if anyone's listening to try to reach that, um, why do you think that you were able to hit that level? Um, do you think it was like the experience of the team or was it like a cultural thing? Yeah, I think fortunately I've worked at, like I said, I've worked at places like Microsoft and Amazon, um, prior to, to buddy build and you learn what aspects of the culture like resonate with you and kind of what work, you know, working at a small company versus working at a big company. Um, there's definitely kind of trade-offs and, and things that you should apply at certain times versus not. Um, one of things, one of the things I really liked about Amazon was its hyper, hyper focus on, um, its customers. Like they have these leadership principles. I think there was 11 at the time. Now there's 13 and whatever the number is now, but those are not platitudes. Those are things that people re refer to on a day-to-day -day basis as part of the conversations that they would have with their coworkers. And so this, you know, bias for action and being super customer obsessed is something we cared a lot about, um, even at Unblock today, uh, and for most of Buddy Build, um, I do all, well, well, right now I do all the technical support and at Buddy Build, I did a more majority of it. So I would be up uh, at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning answering questions from people who were in Europe overnight, um, really understanding kind of like where it worked, what the product didn't work, what features we should be prioritizing. Um, so just really getting your hands dirty and people would be blown away by it. They're like, oh, they're talking to the CEO. And I was like, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm just someone who gets to like really want to feel the pain um, to, to kind of solve these problems for folks. Yeah. And I, it's interesting you say pain there. Like um, I feel like uh, deploying apps is something that is like a very like emotional thing almost in developer teams. Cause it's like, if it fails on a Friday or something, it's like, you're, you're kind of screwed. You're going to work late. Um, and, and like all your, none of your work counts until you get it out. Was it something that you were thinking a lot about, like building something that people like care that much about? It's like, cause you could have done something else that like wasn't such a big deal to people. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, CI certainly is probably not the sexiest developer tool to kind of go into. Uh, I think almost 
irrespective of where you are in the developer ecosystem or what part of the tool chain or workflow or scenarios that you're thinking about, one of the things that you know we we care a lot about is making sure that people have an amazing experience. So, you know, one of the things I didn't want to have to subject our users to because I didn't want to have to do it is change my project in any way, shape, or form unless it like accrued some value to me. So our onboarding experience for Buddy Build was you literally pointed it out to a repo. And you didn't have to check in a file or describe the branches or any of that kind of stuff, like which one we should build or how your dependencies work. None of it. All you did was just like pointed out to a re- pointed at a repo. We had like a very very high rate. I'd say like in the high nineties, people would get a green build just by like saying build this repo. That's it. They didn't have to do anything because that's kind of the experience that you know I wanted and the team wanted to be able to provide. How do you do that? Well, there's a lot of work to make it seem. Actually, in fact, I remember the very first version of like kind of that onboarding flow. People thought it was totally made up. They didn't think it was actually a green build because it felt so magical. And so when people would be like, you know, they honestly think it was bullshit and they'd be like, oh, there's no way it actually built the thing. So what we had to do was actually build a streaming kind of service so you could actually see the log lines coming out of the build system somewhat sanitized or whatever. So you could see it actually building. You could download the binary there afterwards. So um, yeah, it's one of those things where if you build this magical experience, developers are inherently, I would say like skeptical or kind of dubious. And so it's important that you kind of open the, open the curtains a little bit and show you how you show people how it works. Yeah. I, I really like that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. And it is such a pain. Like, I mean, now I, I know a lot of people use like fast lane and I don't know if that was around like when you were, yeah. the like huge file that you kind of can config and you can spend days and days and days setting this thing up. Um, and it's, so it's pretty amazing that they could just, yeah, get a like a 90, you could get a 90% success rate on, on building it. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a place for you to get started and then kind of evolve it. It's the same thing that we do with Unblocked, which is a lot of, almost all the teams that use it, when we chat with them, they're like, look, our code base is absolute spaghetti, dumpster fire. We're embarrassed to like kind of onboard it. And everyone thinks they're like a unique snow, snowflake. And it's, everyone feels that way. I'm sure, well, there's definitely members of the team that feel that way about our code base. And so we don't want you to have to change, like refactor your repo or like, you know, reorganize your, you know, uh, Google Docs or how you use Notion. Like you should just work the way that you want to work. And the product that we build with Unblocked just uses it the way it is to provide a really compelling experience. Like it's, there's no work on behalf of the end user in order for you to get something that should feel magical. Okay. That's very, very interesting. So let's say like this week you wanted to like make it, you know, slightly more magical. Um, how, what are the kind of like things that you do in that process? One of the things I learned early on in my career, which I always thought was uh, a really good kind of heuristic or framework is this something called BXT, business experience technology. So is there a business behind the thing that you're trying to build? An important question, because if there isn't, it's not long-term viable then our process is we really think through what is a really kind of kick-ass compelling experience? Like what is the X? How do we make sure that like that feels amazing? And so we sit down as a team, um, design, engineering, myself, and we say like, would that feel amazing? Would this feel amazing? Um, and then really we spent a lot of time kind of in Figma and the design process to say, you know, 
remove the constraints of the technology as it exists today, what would be an amazing experience? And then go and build or use the technology to create that experience. And so sometimes I find a lot of teams are focused on what's the technology I have at hand and how can I make it do something cool? We are, what would be something cool? And like, let's make the technology happen to make that experience possible. Would you work on something if the technology required you to like go go away for like a year and work on it? Or is it like something that's like, do you set like any upper limit on like the diff- the time between like, this is what would be amazing and then like actually releasing? There's often kind of stepping stones for you to get there, but we generally try to make those stepping stones kind of as um, as meaningful as possible. So you might have like a fullness like of what that experience might look like. And you're like, well, if we ratcheted back and built this thing at this point in time, then would that be compelling? Um, once it's not, I don't know that there's really any point in like releasing it. Uh, so it is one of those things where we basically will wait until we think it's it's really good and we don't think there are any issues with it and kind of go from there. That's interesting. And do you do like, do you bring many like user, like are you talking to your target users at that point or? So, you know, there's kind of two phases. Generally, when you have a lot of people that you can ask, you know, hey, what do you think of this? And not. <laughs> so if you don't have anyone, then you kind of have to, you know, fortunately, we build developer tools. We're a bunch of developers. And so we can say, yeah, based on our perspective and, and, and what, what we might like. At a certain point, though, you kind of have to, that can actually be a very significant uh, in hindrance in you building a meaningful developer tool. I think it's very easy for people who develop, who build developer tools to say, you should have work like this, have a very opinionated way of, of working or what that experience should look like. I think you need to be like, you know, strong convictions loosely held, be able to like say, hey, you know, here's this hypothesis of the problem that we're trying to solve. Here's an experiment that we want to run. Um, and say, you know, we think the way that we should best solve this is through this kind of software experience and have an opinion, go out, show people. And if it works, then you're going to get more and more people at a certain point in time, you can spin up a small group of early adopters before you release it to like the masses to say, we think this is magical. Do you think this is magical? Um, and, you know, kind of iterate with those folks to kind of sanity check your yourself. The weirdest thing about it is like, it's this almost weird paradox where when you come up with the idea, you're like, oh, this is magical. And by the time it's built, you're bored of it. You're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Let's move on. <laughs> so, so, and then you release it and then people are like, oh, this is actually really cool. And you're like, that is really cool. I forgot about that. So it's this weird, weird kind of cycle that you go through. Yeah. I, I struggle with that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, every, every artist, no matter what creative process they go through, when they have the final product, they more often see the deficiencies of it than the actual art that they've created. Like if you could talk to, um, you know, any historically significant artist and be like, oh, what's your favorite work? They'd be like eh, this, but I wish I had, you know, that's how it all almost, I think almost every software engineer feels the same way. You don't want to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, one question I had, because I feel like this is something that a lot of people struggle with, um, is how you seg, how you come up with like a ideal customer profile, like user when like any realistically, like any developer would want to like ask their code, ask questions to their code, uh, or, you know, almost anyone, um, mm-hmm. like, how do you think about like, 
customer, like target customers? Yeah, it's a good question. So for us, you know, you try to think of the extremes, right? And we've been fortunate to experience them. A group of four people who go into the office every single day um, and know the code base because it's six months or a year old probably don't need to know a lot about how the code base works because they have it all paged into their brain. Some of our customers are like, well, some of them are decades old, but let's just say 10, 12, 15 years old who have thousands of repositories and thousands of people. Um, those people, there's no way that any single person could page in and understand how the entire history for every part of their code base. And so the software that we're building is kind of uses, you know, the LLM stuff as an enabling technology to solve a very specific common workflow, right? Which is a developer has a question like, why did we do it this way? Or how does that work? Or who should I talk to? And so you can use this technology, the LLM AI stuff, um, to actually solve this human workflow that happens every single day. Um, so in terms of like finding our ideal customer, well, it's kind of Goldilocks, right? One's too, too hot, one's too cold. You kind of look for the one that's just right. I can't imagine that like, well, having worked at Apple, this is not a product that Apple should go and roll out right now. Uh, maybe at some point in the future. Uh, but given like that size and kind of the software engineering complexity, how they organize themselves, how they share information or, or not, um, it's not a great fit. But there's, I don't know, one and a half, two apples in the world, depending on who has the highest market cap at any given time. Uh, so, you know, you just have to find that sweet spot in between. How does that like, like, do you find those people? Like, if you're looking for the sweet spot, is it like, how are you, how are you going out and finding them? Yeah, it, that's a super good question. Like, how do you get started? It's always like, it's one of those flywheels that's, you know, I hate that kind of, kind of expression or that an, an analogy, but it is really like, it's really, really, really hard to get started. Like, it's very painful to have it start moving. Um, so you really kind of have to beg and plead and, you know, kind of do whatever unnatural acts that you can get to like, say like, please, someone use my software. And then if you've built this magical thing, the flywheel kind of starts to move a little bit. And so what we've seen is like people seem to really find value in the product and, and are starting to love it. And so they start to tell their friends and then those people enjoy it. And then they start to tell their friends. And so it starts, the flywheel kind of starts to move onto itself. But in the very early days, it's, you know, asking friends for help or favors to say like, Hey, would you use this? Tell me what you think. Um, I've recently talked to a, another uh, CEO where his company is probably eight or nine years on now. Um, and they're, you know, doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue. And he misses these. He's like, I, I my favorite part, I think about building a company is all the rejection and the nose that you get. And I was like, I think that's an easy thing to say when you're making tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're constantly getting like smacked in the face, uh, you kind of have a slightly different perspective on it. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds like a kind of like a, one of those influencer tweets of like, yeah, <laughs> cold plunge yeah. as well. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I want to like specifically ask you, like, what do you do differently now that you didn't do with Buddy Build? Um, I think there's a, yeah, so there's a couple of things. I always have this analogy of like, when you're doing building a company for the first time, you're kind of walking into a dark room that's littered with furniture and you're probably going to smash your toe in a bunch of things. And so hopefully you just get bruises and not breaks. In the second time around, um, you kind of have a layout for what the furniture is and you try not to like bump into the same thing twice, right? 
we're still going to make mistakes uh, because things change, right? The, the ecosystem, the environment isn't static. So of course it's like someone has moved a chair or, you know, put a, a floor lamp where it wasn't there last time or what have you. So trying to make some of the mistakes, but very specifically, I think one of the biggest, uh, I don't think a lot of people talk about this, but one of the biggest things is, you know, from zero to three years, that's not working 35, 40 hours a week. That's working 60, 70 hours a week for three years, like barely taking vacations, really being obsessive about building that business. Um, there's, you know, unquestionably, I went through kind of a, a depressed period after the acquisition where I kind of lost my identity and purpose um, because it was buddy built. Like I didn't have any kind of space or time for that. Um, and so one of the kind of things that I talked about, so the team that's building Unblocked is a lot of the original members that built Buddy Build. Um, and so one of the things I asked is like, I am an obsessive person. Don't let me get to a place where it impacts kind of like effectively my mental health. Um, and so I set up, you know, very specific ways to make sure that I don't fall into that rabbit hole that is just constantly obsessing with it. So um, you know, trying not to work on Saturdays, going for, for walks. I got a dog, dogs are time consuming, things like that. Yeah. It's how this is kind of taking it sideways, but like, I remember when I finished university, I did like a, a startup full-time for a year and it was with my friend and we, we slept, we had a room, like a flat and we slept in the flat and we worked like all the time. And we, we did that for like nine months and we made a ton of progress. We did quite well, but we burned out, we ran out of money and we, uh, you know, we, we left and in, in hindsight, there were a lot of successes on the way, but like, it's one of those things where like, I, there's this like kind of side to you where you're like, even when you're like, yeah, I was really depressed or like it was dangerous. It was bad for my mental health, but you also feel like proud of it, that you did it. And that like, you're like, I don't know, like, do you have, do you find that as like kind of this weird thing where you're like most proud of like the pain that you put yourself through in a way? Yeah, I think it's easy, you know, sometimes people think like, why would you start a second company? Like, especially in developer tools, you must be a masochist in some form, <laughs> shape or form. Uh, and yeah, there's probably a, a masochistic tendency, right? I just like whipping myself. Um, the, um, Pride is, I think, one of the things that, like, certainly, I don't know, just like my predisposition, there's no pride in um, in in the beatings. Um, certainly, like, I think I probably maybe internalized that, which is like, I'm a relatively competitive person, and so I like to make sure that um, the stuff that I work on is is really good and quote unquote wins for whatever that's worth. Um, but it's not winning against someone else necessarily; it's winning against what I think is possible. Um, and so, um, I don't know that I ever kind of externalized it. Uh, people want to talk about the Apple acquisition or selling a company, to Apple, so on and so forth. Um, but that was kind of a, a means to an end in some capacity. It was just like, how do we get this vision at like kind of the, you know, the biggest possible scale? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know that I would, um, I, I wouldn't show, I wouldn't show anyone the scars, but there's a lot of them. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about them, but it's not something I wear with pride, I guess. Yeah. Does that answer your question? I guess is that, does it, that it does, and but it also kind of gives me another one of like, do you feel like proud of like the body build? You know, yes and no. I think it's a it's a great way of accomplishing. Um, it's a great kind of experience to kind of go through. It's a great accomplishment to be able to say like, hey, we built something that people loved. 
Um, and that was memorialized by kind of an acquisition by, you know, a company that is uh, unquestionably like one of the best in the world. Um, that's very humbling in, in many ways. Um, but I think, you know, when I go back to like what were, were the highlights, it wasn't the acquisition. It was the it was the fan art. It was the, you know, people saying, thank you for giving me back the time that I can spend with my family. Things like that are you know, that's the most humbling. That's like, I think the, to the degree that you can take a problem that most people find quote unquote, not interesting and build something that people actually really love. Maybe that's why I do it the second time. Right. It's, I, I think anyone who starts companies has some level of ego and so maybe that's, you know, that ego stroke of having someone really love the thing that you built. Uh, maybe that's the, that's the accomplishment or that's the, that's the thing that kind of motivates me. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. And did you, did you like, is that high, like you kind of missed that from the time that you were working at Apple, um, as like a, you know, software, but what was your director of technology, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And developer yeah. tools. Yeah. So yeah, after Apple, I took a year and a half off. Um, and I remember meeting uh, a guy actually, and I was like, oh, you know, it's decompression. He's like, no, no, man, it's recovery. Uh, and I thought that was a very interesting way of describing it. And it was actually probably pretty true. Like I remember after the acquisition, it was a Saturday morning, it was eight 30 in the morning. I was hopping into the shower and I was like, what do people do if they don't work on Saturdays? Like I just didn't even, I was so like acclimated to working that I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of what you do. Um, so yeah, a year and a half off after, uh, after this, uh, after the acquisition. Um, and I started thinking about this problem, right? Like it seems painfully obvious that we have these gross inefficiencies in getting the information that we need to get our jobs done as, as engineers. And so I was like, well, that just kind of bugs me, right? The way, like the most acute way that we feel this is people send us Slack messages or tap us on the shoulder and say like, hey, I have a question. Like at one point we were going to call the company bother, right? Like don't bother <laughs> me, I don't bother you. It's, you know, everything's good, but weird negative connotations. So we decided to <laughs> But I was like, man, it'd be great if you could just like ask questions and get responses or, you know, as you're scrolling through your source code, you can see all of the conversations in Notion and Slack and all your bugs related to the source code that you're looking at. That'd be amazing. Um, and so I was kind of passionate about solving that problem. Um, and, you know, I've always optimized my career for the people that you work with should be like a significant, like it's 85% of the decision of anywhere that I would go and work. And so getting an opportunity to potentially work with the, you know, the buddy build, the team that built buddy build was, you know, just something like if there was an opportunity to do that, to solve this problem, it'd be kind of crazy not to. Uh, and so that was the motivation to kind of go back and clearly I'm a masochist in some capacity. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's, um, no, that's really, really interesting way to, yeah, put it. Um, yeah. And, uh, I think Dennis, we're coming up to time. Um, but would you have any takeaways that you would give to, um, a founder at, you know, currently going through their first dev tool experience? A couple of things. I think things that are unique to developer tools is the way that you work is not the way that everyone works. Right. And so you have to be like, you need to have those kind of opinions for potentially how it should work, but flexible enough to accommodate. Um, and so uh, I think unlike other businesses, it's very easy, I think, developers to be like, well, you should organize your project this way or you should think about dependency management that way or whatever it might be. So that's probably one. Two, um, you know, things that are kind of like less specific to developer tools, but like really make sure that the people that you're working for or for working for, I always think that I work for the team, even though I'm like, you know, the CEO, but like 
we all work together. Uh, and so make sure that the people that you're working with are people that you respect and admire, um, that they are better than you in some way, shape or form. Um, and so I think that's like, you know, uh, those are kind of one that's very specific to developer tools and one that I think is like is very um, kind of broadly applicable for any company that you start or any company that you work at for that matter. Yeah, it's actually interesting. You know, like people always say, like first time founders talk about products, like second time talk about uh, go to market. I feel like yeah. the thing that you've spoken most about is people um, and I, in, in the conversation. Yeah, I think like you can't build a great product or go to market motion unless you have fantastic people. I'm still very, very obsessed over the product. Like repeatedly, I was like, if you build a product that people love, the rest really does take care of itself. People will tell other people, you don't have to have a structured go to market, you know, thing, but like you will at some point, but you can get a long way by building a product that people love. Well, how do you do that? Well, you have to build it with really good people. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a very analytical, maybe uh, Machiavellian way of thinking about it, but. Mm. That's uh, no, it's definitely not. Um, so where can people learn more about you and about Unblocked? Sure. Uh, the easiest thing to do is go to getunblocked.com. We want developers to get unblocked. And so we'd like that kind of domain name where you can get the software and you can help yourself get unblocked. Uh, so yeah, getunblocked.com is where you can get that. And then um, I'm just Dennis Pilarinos on Twitter. Uh, so super long last name. I think if I've been Dennis Apple Vancouver, you'll, you'll probably get me. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, well, actually my first ever plug that I, I really should have done before. If you listen and you enjoy the podcast, I really appreciate it. If you could give us like a rating and in Spotify and Apple and all these sorts of things, um, and give us a shout out. But, um, yeah, thanks everyone for listening and, uh, see you again soon. Okay. Thank you. And thanks for Dennis for coming. I don't know if I did that. <laughs> 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 <laughs>